Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. I'm going to pray before I start, uh, so please join me. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for every person here. Thank you that you know us uh, intimately. You know every bit about us. You know our joys as well as our sorrows. And Father, we, um, we thank you for the reminder that you uh, have made us you, you, and because of you, your uh, giving us life, each and every one of us is special in your eyes. And we thank you for that, Father. Amen. Where I work in the city, uh, near the back of Town Hall, there are a lot of homeless people who... Uh, are, very, uh, are there on the street. It's impossible to go for a walk without seeing someone begging for money in some form. The other day I was with a crowd of commuters uh, in this sort of you know, wave of people going past this one man who was sitting in the same spot that he sits each time uh, begging for money. And he, he, he looks a bit of a wreck of a person, I have to say. Uh, he's really dirty and hairy and sort of strange looking. And... I was uh, doing what I've done many times, which is go past, and I sort of re- then I realised I've got some. I've just been to Coles, right? So I had some shopping. I thought, well, I'll, I'll go back and see if he'd like some food. And as I got there, there was this young guy who was in his twenties. He was a kind of cool-looking guy in his sort of athletic gear. And just as I got there, he was sitting down next to this man and handing him a cup of coffee. And uh, I, I sort of arrived and I rather awkwardly said, oh, you know, would you like a muesli bar or something to eat? And the man said, no, thanks. No, no thank you, but no. And uh, the young guy says, oh, he's probably got bad teeth. Oh, don't worry, I've got him a cup of coffee and it's chock full of sugar. And uh, he'll like that. And as I sort of turned to go, I heard him say, as he put out his hand to shake his hand, what's your name? You've got mad hair like me. And uh, it, was a, it was sort of a lovely moment. It was, there was nothing patronising about this at all. Uh, he was taking the time, this young man, and affording this homeless man his dignity and I guess his full humanity. Whereas for many of us passing by, it was sort of hard to see that humanity. It was a, a lovely moment of mercy, of kindness for another human being. But what is it to be a human being? That's the question we want to pursue today. I think it's a critical question with profound implications for how we as a society and as individuals view ourselves and view other people and therefore how we think we ought to live. It's a really important question. We're going to examine it today. There are different and competing ways of understanding what it is to be a human being. Uh, Writing in the uh, Australian Book of Atheism, Rosalind Ives confidently states that science has determined that living bodies are animated by nothing more than all the complex living processes working within them. So you get that? The sort of the physical stuff. There's nothing else and science has shown that apparently. I, I happen to think that science has done nothing of the sort. But when it comes down to it, Rosalind Ives is, is a sort of spot on. Uh, a non-believer, someone with no room for God in their lives, pretty much has to think of a person as a singularly 
physical and material being. So the only logical position, at least, for a non-believer is to regard humans as merely animals, although, you know, albeit complex, very complex ones, and to consider every aspect of human existence in purely material terms, meaning they're not allowing for anything you can't see or touch or measure, the material kind of physical aspect of life. Now, for someone in, in that position, the, the atheist, humans are complex machines, but nothing more. We're amazing. Right? We're the result of uh, billions of years of evolutionary development, a combination of chance and uncontrolled processes. It's, you know, over centuries, millennia, got us to where we are today. Whenever I hear someone talk in those terms, I, I just I'm left wanting to ask, does that picture adequately explain the feeling of being in love, for instance? Does it adequately explain being bitterly angry at injustice or being heartbroken by suffering or loss or disappointment? It feels to me like there's huge chunks of the human experience that are left out of that uh, depiction of the human person. Now, in my own life, this resonates in all sorts of ways, but probably most powerfully in my experience as a parent. Now, some of you here will remember that a couple of Christmases ago, uh, I found myself sitting at the bedside in Royal uh, Randwick Hospital of my daughter, Emma, 10-year-old daughter, getting ready for what was to be her third operation in a week uh, to clear a blockage that was in her bowel. She was very, very sick. Uh, there was a whole series of complications. Nobody knew how the operation was going to work out or what the surgeons would find. Now, the feelings that I experienced before she went into that operation uh, were intense, to say the least. Uh, there were memories I had of sitting next to her just when she was first born, first, you know, just come out of her mum's womb. And there she was, I couldn't forget that. I just remember staring at her for hours, you know, unable to take my eyes off this amazing creature in front of me. And so there was that memory, but also the memories in between, of course. And there was this lurking fear that something would go wrong in the operation. I felt this almost overwhelming love and connectedness to her. Now, any parent would feel the same. I, I don't by any means want to suggest that you have to have some sort of religious belief to feel anything like that. I don't mean that. But I, but I would say this, that if I were to accept naturalism, that is, there's no God or gods or anything like that in the you know, sort of supernatural realm, I would have to think that as I, as I sat there stroking my daughter's cheek, experiencing something that was sort of beyond pressure, beyond any language that I could come up with, maybe even sacred. All of that would have to be ultimately thought of as just a function of chemistry resulting from the firing of billions of neurons in my brain or something of that nature. A kind of physical reaction and a connection to our wider evolution as a species. I'd have to think that if it, in a sort of a logical pattern. But the problem I have is I don't, I don't know a single person who lives like that's true. No one lives as if that is the totality of our existence. But in the West, in our culture, 
following a couple of hundred years of challenge to the idea of a belief in a God, your average person, maybe, you go out on the course and talk to a person about this, your, your average person might answer that question, what is it to be a human being, along these sorts of lines. They might say something like this, well, a human is a particularly advanced animal and the result of accidental forces of evolution. Okay? Now, in the face of these hard facts, humans might construct rituals and stories to ease the pain of life, that's what we're doing here today, Right, but ultimately, these are fictions. The best thing that we can do is to live as if our lives have meaning, but knowing deep down that the only meaning that we can get is what we can construct ourselves. There's nothing beyond us, nothing beyond us that gives us any sort of preordained purpose. We are the sole architects of our lives, including the moral laws by which we live. Okay, well, this is the... The in, that's a very strong current in our culture. Right? The, the, the individual, uh, who's the architect, the author of their story. And don't tell me what to do because that will get in the way of that, right? My choices. Now, importantly, when death occurs, the end is the end. It's game over. Uh, there's absolutely no hope beyond the here and now. Now, according to this way of thinking, humans are, of course, very valuable. But usually this value that people attribute to human beings is due to some capacity, like language it's often talked about, or perhaps rational thought, or, or the ability to, to have moral reasoning, those sorts of things. It's attached to a, 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 a function of, of some sort. Now, you might be left wondering though, when, what, what happens to that value? Does it disappear when you have a stroke? or when you have a car crash and you lose one or more of these functions. Um, many men and women don't possess, at least not in equal measure, uh, all those capacities. And so this has all sorts of implications for newborns, for dementia patients possibly, for mentally disabled people. And they have less value if, it, if we're attached to sort of utility. And there are huge implications for viewing life in these terms in thoroughly materialistic terms. And we're starting to see those implications in bioethics, very complex area, but in bioethics, beginning of life care and end of life care, for sure, see this a lot. And also in our sexuality, what does it mean to be a human being has huge implications for how we view that. Now the famous Australian philosopher, Peter Singer, who spends half his time in the United States, half the time here in, in, in uh, Australia, in Melbourne, he once famously stated that if a baby is born disabled, it makes more sense to replace it with one who is not disabled, to kill the disabled baby and try again. This is how he said it. So when the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. Worth just sitting with that for a second. I, I would say Peter Singer is being entirely consistent and honest uh, with his worldview, which is thoroughly naturalistic. There's no God or gods or anything like that. He, he explains it this way. Um, when we reject belief in God, we must give up, he says, we must give up the idea that life on this planet has some preordained meaning. Life as a whole has no meaning. Life just happened. It didn't happen to any overall purpose. 
And when you, when you think that way, you're not pushed towards the view that he took, what we saw earlier, necessarily, but at least it makes sense to see infants as valuable according to their ability to function well. You see that? It makes sense to see infants as valuable according to their ability to function well. It's a worldview being lived out and uh, the implications are quite striking, I think. So it's worth comparing all of that with the Christian understanding of the human person that's been with us in the West for 2,000 years. See, according to the biblical picture, right at the beginning in the book of Genesis, humans are created in God's image. So we heard that passage Rod read out to us. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, and you know, you know, you know the rest. And he says, it's very good. Now, humanity in this depiction is the high point of the whole creative act of God. It's a lofty vision of who we all are. And we're given a unique place in the cosmos. There's lots of things we might say about what it means to be made in the image of God, but it means at least these two things. It means representation, we're to be God's special representatives on earth. We're also to be God's children. There's a family kind of connection here, reflecting his character in the world. So representation and be part of God's family. In such a framework, the way the Bible talks about this, about what it is to be a human being, humans are closer to God than they are to the animals. You know, uh, Psalm 8 that describes humans as made just a little lower than the heavenly, heavenly beings. Psalm 139, it's a good one to read. Take it out this week and read it. I know God talks about, we have this idea here of God knitting us together in our mother's womb. This wonderful kind of picture of who we are before God. Now the contrast between other ancient um, creation stories as well as some pretty strong currents in contemporary thinking is enormous. Couldn't be, couldn't be more different. So in, in uh, the Babylonian creation stories uh, that are around at the time, humans are the result of chaos and carnage and violence between the gods. It's sort of the refuse of these fights. Now, there's nothing positive about that. And they're there just to serve the gods as slaves. And then the Genesis, the writer of Genesis comes along and says, no, no, no. Made in God's image. It's a really... It's a strong protest against that sort of thinking. And in the contemporary world, in some people's minds, we are ultimately the result of you know, slime mould that got lucky in the kind of progression of how things worked out. When we get to the New Testament, we get this incredible concept that we, that we pick up from Judaism of the image of God and it's turbocharged with the incarnation right, of God himself becoming a person. It's a, do you ever stop and think about that? I mean, it's like way over the top 
idea. God himself becomes a person. And if God does in fact become a person, as the Bible claims, then Jesus' life, death and resurrection declare in the most emphatic way imaginable that human beings are stamped with divine approval. Every human person bears the image of God. And because of that, every person is of inestimable and eternal value. Every person. Now, we're also fallen. The Christian notion of of, uh, human nature also talks about the tainted image. We all have the image, but it's, it's broken. We are broken, we're fallible, we're in great need of redemption. Don't we know it? We're in great need of redemption. And that's also, that idea is also bound up tightly with the idea of Christ, uh, what, who Jesus was on, what he was on about, who he was. Now in terms of the history of Western culture, it's this immense dignity, this unimaginably exalted vision of the human person that emerges out of a story. It emerges out of the Christian story in the first century that brought an absolutely revolutionary change to our understanding of each life and the value of each life. It's like the reverberations of which still resonate today. We might be out on the edges of that ripple effect, if, if you like, but still our culture has some connection with this still. And not, a very important thing to remind ourselves, not every culture has thought in these terms. Uh, doesn't today, it certainly didn't uh, think that way in the Roman world into which Christianity was born. The Greco-Roman world was a place where babies could be regularly found on the rubbish dumps outside the city walls. Uh, this was a culture that couldn't, could just simply couldn't conceive of such an understanding of human value that Christianity brought with it. Yeah, you, you might remember the, the famous verse from Galatians chapter 3 that says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The great levelling but elevating vision of every single person. It's clear that Western culture has benefited from this cultural shift even when our society's almost forgotten the story and the reason behind it. David Bentley Hart, the theologian, says that he talks about this as the moral vision of the human person that he says is seen most clearly in the early Christians' attitude towards orphans, widows, prisoners and the sick. He says the same idea was responsible for us coming to view the handicapped, the destitute, mentally ill, the wretched, derelict, refugees, criminals as people of value to be welcomed, not discarded. He says it's an idea that has haunted us ever since. C.S. Lewis says it this way, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, marry, so work with, marry, snub and exploit. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. 
But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. I just I feel like our culture, there's something about our culture that still understands and accepts this. See, we, we accept that no amount of trouble and expense uh, is, is to be spared in the search and the rescue of just one life. We see this all the time. People lost off the coast. We send planes and boats. No one thinks that's a, a bad idea. We do it all the time. Um, you might remember uh, the Beaconsfield gold mining accident a few years ago. Um, one miner was trapped. Two others were locked in what is, I have to admit, my greatest nightmare. Right, in darkness and a confined space for two weeks. Still going to get those sort of cold sweats when I think about that. Um, and, you know, we were all glued to the set. Finally, it was a good news story. They came out and Bill Shorten at the time was the, the union representative and they asked him about reopening the mine. And this is what he said. No amount of gold that could be extracted from that mine is worth one life. No amount of gold is worth one life. Where does he get that idea from? Where do we get that idea from? And do we, do we still believe it? The, the decision a few weeks ago not to seek the bodies of those asylum seekers that were lost off the northwest coast uh, was a chilling one for me. I felt like that uh, might have cast a shadow over what I'm talking about. We'll wait and see. Um, the image of God's status of every human being is the thing that guarantees the dignity and the worth of every individual regardless of their capacity, regardless of their function or their ability. It's what you might call a bestowed worth. Right? It's not because of some value we might attribute, it's because God gives us this value. It's bestowed to us. So while people may lose their functions, or they might not have much to begin with, they may lose their independence, for instance, or the usefulness that we might, we might think of as usefulness, this has no impact on their standing before God. None at all. It's a bestowed worth given to us because we're children of God. So our culture links uh, usefulness to our value all the time. We do it. Right? What do you do? We ask people when we meet them. We're sort of assessing their value. And too many of us uh, attribute our own identity to our career or our work and, and that type of thing, our usefulness. We also see older people or chronically ill people who seem to have bought into or accepted this, this line of thinking, you know, attaching usefulness to value, or value to usefulness. And they say, oh, I don't want to be a burden on other people. No. Uh, they've accepted a sort of a market value on this. And we see this, this idea of a, being a burden all the time and starting to get quite a lot of traction in the idea of euthanasia, which is getting a lot of attention in recent times, and I think we'll continue to. The concept of what it is to be a human being according to the Christian worldview, if you like, should be two things. It should be an enormous encouragement to all of us. Every life, precious beyond what we can imagine, but also a great challenge. See, if we view every person, every life as unique, as the irreplaceable work of a creator God, that has profound implications for how we view ourselves and, and other people. Here at church, how we see each other, in our businesses, our employees, or if you're an employee, 
your other fellow employees, your bosses, how we view people on the street, people in our families, people who are difficult to love. And we've all got those people in our lives. The poor, those who are vulnerable and in need of mercy. I want to argue that you don't get anywhere else a stronger affirmation of what it is to be a human being than you get in the Christian vision, the biblical vision, the biblical story. As a way of illustrating this, I want to talk about an amazing sort of story out of the US that I heard about a little while ago, a famous now father and son. Okay? Dick Hoyt and his son Rick. Now when Rick was born, uh, there were a whole lot of complications. Uh, he was born with cerebral palsy and he was, he was very you know, unwell when he was born. And the doctors said to the family, listen, you have to understand something. This, he's a lifeless body. No, there's nothing going on in his mind. And for the sake of your family, what you need to do is put him in a home and leave him there and get on with your lives. Now this family said, look, we're not going to do that. So they took him home. And you know, they propped him up in front of the, the footy games and the hockey. They put him in the pool and, and uh, you know, we'd float him around the pool with, with the other kids. And they used to see his eyes moving around. He never was able to communicate at all. They just had a sense that there was more going on for him. And then when he was about 11 years old, there was a, some technology that came apparent that was, enabled him to tap out on a computer some communication, if he was able indeed to communicate. So they set this thing up and Rick's there and he taps out. The first thing he taps out was go the Bruins. That's the local ice hockey team in Boston. And the family is sort of like, wow, you know. We thought he could, you know, he's right, he's there, right? And they found out really over time that he was an intelligent mind trapped in a body that didn't work. And he eventually went on to graduate from Boston University and he had a degree in special education. Now, the story goes that when Rick was about 15 years old, he tapped out on the computer to his dad, there's a fun run uh, down the road, uh, a five-kilometre fun run. I'd like you to take me in it. Now, it's really important for the story to get this detail. His dad was not a jogger, okay? So he does the 5K fun run, takes him in, pushes him on this thing, and he taps out at the end of this, Dad, you know, that, that makes me feel like I'm not disabled when you do that. Guess what? There's a 10K run up the road next, next weekend. So I want you to push me in that too. Okay, we pick up the story when these guys are at the Hawaiian Ironman Triathlon, like the hardest version of this sort of race in the world where you swim 3.8 kilometres, right? In this case, it's the dad swimming, towing a, little, a dinghy, right, with him in the back. Then you get on a bike and ride 180 kilometres, right, and across the lava fields in Hawaii, it's stinking hot, 180 kilometres. Then you get off the bike, put him on the wheelchair, and you push him a whole marathon, right, 42 kilometres. You start in the dark, you end in the dark, I've got a clip here to show because it illustrates it nicely and then I want to say something about it to finish.
picture of a father. A great contrast with what I was talking about earlier. Uh, father's love uh, forged out of difficulty and brokenness. But great uh, beauty in that. I don't know uh, what, if any, religious conviction this family hold. But what's clear to me is that they epitomise the best aspects of a culture that has emerged from and now exists in the long shadow of a story. The Christ event, that story, that tells us that every life is incalculably precious, that each person is worth preserving no matter what, no matter what their condition or their capacity to perform. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says that who am I, that is, who are we as a people, is the fundamental question of our existence. It's our self-identity, it's the window through which we perceive and engage with the world and it determines all that we do. He says it's formed by two factors, memory and destiny, meaning where we've come from where we're going, where we've come from and where we're going. According to the biblical picture, we are children of the creator of the universe and because of that, we are immeasurably precious. We're in need of redemption and because of Jesus, we're able to be redeemed. It's where we've come from and then where we're going, we're destined for eternity, destined for eternity. When people want to dismiss Christianity as oppressive and outdated, as many do, we have to keep telling this story and comparing it to other versions of what it is to be human. Because I'm confident that when we do that, we're telling something that looks the most coherent, that matches with reality as we experience it and is the most inspiring, the most beautiful, the most uplifting. Now, if we've, if we've still got time, I haven't over sort of stayed my welcome. We might have, we've got time for a couple of comments or questions if anyone wants to uh, say something, ask a question, disagree nicely with anything I've said. Uh, happy to do that. Happy to hear.